0: Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. And we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount uh, for a while now and uh, getting near the end of that. Um, so I'm going to read just a few verses from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 to 23. Well the importance of what Jesus says in these few short verses can't be overstated for they are critical not only for our daily lives here and now but they also seem to have eternal consequences. For just as Jesus says there are only two ways, the broad and the narrow way so too in the end there are only two destinies, heaven or hell. Keith Green was a a popular Christian singer in the 1970s and early 80s And he once quipped that uh, going to church didn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's a point that not only bears repeating, but one that has some relevance to the text before us today. For as he begins to close his sermon, Jesus makes a very similar point, in fact. Just as there is a distinction to be made between true and false prophets, so too there is a distinction between true and false disciples. Although the crowd was a mixture of disciples, potential disciples, and outright opponents, the target of his warning here is not atheists. In fact, that term would have made little sense in the ancient world, where generally everyone believed in one god or another, or in fact believed in many gods. Nor is his warning directed at heretics who deny the basic truths of the Torah. Rather, it is directed at those who are devotedly religious, at least externally so. He's speaking about a group of people who, because of their religious activities, think that they are on the narrow road of salvation, but who are, in fact, on the broad road to destruction. In that sense, this is a group of people who are self-deluded. And it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't dispute the claim that they have prophesied or worked miracles in his name, We are not given the sense that these people were deliberately trying to mislead or to con anyone. It's possible, therefore, that they really genuinely believed they were hearing from God when they prophesied and that when they ministered, that they were ministering in his power. So their claim on the face of it is genuine. In fact, they sound surprised at Jesus' response. But Jesus makes a counterclaim that he doesn't know them. I think that this is one of the most important warnings that Jesus makes in the Gospels. For this kind of self-delusion is by its very nature subtle and often only recognised when it's too late. There's some disagreement among biblical scholars as to what is meant by the phrase Lord, Lord. Uh, The term Lord was used in a a number of different ways in the ancient world. The Romans used it to refer to the emperor uh, and also to some of the the gods that they worshipped. But it could refer to anyone in a position of authority or power, or someone who owned land or property. And so, as Leon Morris notes, it had become a kind of conventional form of address in polite society. As a title, it was used in the first century Mediterranean societies very much like we use it today, or we would use it today to refer to a personal status and privilege in society, the great and the good, as we might say. It should also be noted that, and this is a very early stage in Jesus' ministry, and so it's possible that calling Jesus Lord here doesn't imply the full divine significance of that title carried in the post-resurrection period. During Jesus' ministry, the term is used by people mostly as a title of respect. But we should note that in Matthew's Gospel, the title Lord is also used by people who come to Jesus looking for divine help. As the story progresses, the disciples use the title with increasing deference because with each miracle, Jesus turns out to be more than they had first thought. The title of Lord is also one of the titles that Jesus uses to refer to himself that increasingly reveals his divine identity. And furthermore, since it's used here in connection with the phrase on that day, which is a a phrase loaded with significance for uh, his audience, uh, referring as it does to judgment day, it's not unreasonable to assume that its use here is intended to have overtones of divinity. So there's some recognition Uh, from these disciples that Jesus is at the very least a Messiah-like figure uh, and the the repetition of Lord is apparently a way of emphasising their claim perhaps that Jesus is their Lord. The problem for these people is that although their confession of his Lordship is a public one and on the face of it seemingly genuine, it is nonetheless a false confession. As John Stott notes, Jesus is not suggesting that it's wrong to call him Lord. In fact, calling him Lord is indispensable. Rather, he is making it clear that the confession on its own is not enough. The confession must be accompanied by the appropriate lifestyle that demonstrates the reality and truthfulness of the confession. Stott writes, The reason for their rejection by him is that the profession was verbal, not moral. It concerned their lips only and not their life. They called Jesus Lord, Lord, but never submitted to his lordship or obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus says that many will come and call him Lord. It's a word that he has used earlier in the chapter where he says that many will choose the broad road that leads to destruction. Here is the final and greatest tragedy of life. There are some people who will come to the end of the Broadway to find themselves before the throne of judgment and sadly it's only at that point they will realise that they were in fact on the Broadway. Uh, They were on the wrong road all along, even though they thought they were on the right road. And by then it will be too late to change lanes. With that in mind, the counterclaim claim by these false disciples presents something of a problem perhaps. For the confession, Lord, Lord, uh, is, is, is false. Uh, if that's a false claim and, and Jesus declares it to be false, um, their claim to have prophesied and cast out demons and performed other miracles is not false. Otherwise, we would expect Jesus to have challenged or corrected them. And so on the surface of things they not only publicly publicly confess Jesus as Lord, but they also appear to have engaged in serious spiritual ministry in Jesus' name. Now, how many of us can make such claims of our own experience of Christian service? How many uh, prophecies have we made from God? How many uh, healings? Uh, How many miracles? Uh, How many people have we set free from demonic oppression? This is a a really bold claim to make, Uh, and it's really interesting that Jesus does not challenge that aspect of their claim. The question, did we not prophesy, is rhetorical, and it assumes a yes answer, and and the word uh, denotes speaking in God's name or on behalf of God. As further proof of their discipleship, they also point out that they have cast out demons in Jesus' name, following in his own footsteps as the one who cast out demons and evil spirits on a number of occasions. And the term many miracles is used to describe various kinds of miracles, and the word many suggests that this wasn't a one-off event on their part, but rather that they regularly performed such miracles in Jesus' name. So the tone of these disciples is actually one of confusion. For all they have done, they've done all these great spiritual ministries in Christ's name and clearly view them as being enough to earn them uh, entry into the kingdom of heaven. And I doubt if we would feel any differently, actually. If someone in the church started performing miracles in Jesus' name, we would probably be quick to assume that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet we have to be kind of careful here. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9 the Apostle Paul warns us that there is such a thing as counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders that come not from God but from Satan. Both the claim of these false disciples and Jesus' response are perhaps a warning to genuine disciples not to be too easily taken in by the spiritually spectacular With all of this in mind, we can safely say that the people Jesus is describing here are those who have publicly confessed him as Lord, insofar perhaps as they respect him as a great teacher, even as Messiah. They have done many works, powerful works in his name, but what they have not done is that they have not truly repented as a condition for entering the kingdom of heaven. In this age of decline in church attendance, we are perhaps too quick to accept verbal confessions of faith and welcome people into the fellowship of the church. It's possible that in some instances we've actually welcomed in wolves in sheep's clothing. And as Michael Wilkins notes, an oral confession of Jesus as Lord can mask an unrepentant heart. It would take some bravado to claim that the church in the West today is not in a terrible state, riddled with divisions, riddled with sinful behaviour that should not even be mentioned amongst the people of God. Whilst there is a lot of clever speculation as to the causes of our present condition, and I think there are many interrelated causes, One major cause must surely be that for too long the church has focused on making converts rather than on making disciples. It's possible that these people Jesus is talking about are attracted to the community of disciples as an exciting new innovation. Or perhaps they have hopes that a new movement is arising that will see the overthrow of the Romans and a renewed kingdom of Israel. We know that was a very common hope uh, in Israel in the first century. So Jesus' words here are not so much directed at the disciples or those who are on the way to becoming disciples, but rather to those who think they already are disciples, but who are in fact not. Despite their protests, Jesus' verdict is one of total rejection. And just as they make their confession, so too Jesus will make his When he says, I never knew you, he doesn't mean he doesn't know of their existence, but rather that he had never recognised them for what they claimed to be. The key to salvation then, the thing that marks you out as a true disciple, is not simply a verbal confession of Jesus' lordship. For on its own, believing the right doctrine or confessing the right things means very little. As the Apostle James points out, you believe that there is only one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. Nor are miraculous works on their own any evidence of salvation, for the devil counterfeits those in order to deceive even God's people. Again, as Wilkins notes, Jesus never emphasises the external as being the highest sign of authenticity. He demands our inward allegiance to God's will, which will produce fruit of a changed life. We enter into intimate relationship with Jesus through repentance. And as we've already noted in our signposts, repentance is not merely a matter of saying sorry to God. Rather, it is the conscious decision to change the direction of our lives as a result uh, of acknowledging and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus, pledging him our embodied loyalty and allegiance as the saving king who never separates belief from action. The Christian life, the life of a disciple, the life of someone who truly can say that Jesus is Lord, is nothing less than a complete realignment of our an allegiance and loyalty to Jesus that leads to living obediently to his commands. And from that repentance and embodied allegiance, we develop the fruits or we grow the fruits of righteousness in our daily lives as we begin to live more and more in accordance with the will of the Father and become more and more Christ like. Jesus is very clear in these verses. That it is only those who do the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. However, that obedience to the Father's will is not done out of either fear or a sense of religious duty. It is motivated by the intimate relationship and connection that we have with the Son by the Spirit. We should also note that when Jesus says, Away from me, you evildoers, he uses a word that conveys the meaning of habitual practice. These people are not being condemned for an occasional error, but actually for a lifestyle of constant wrongdoing. In short, the fundamental aspects of their life is not geared towards the will of the Father, but to their own will, to the impulses and pool of sin in their lives. It's no wonder this passage has been described as a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avows of faith have no values in the eyes of God if they are not translated into concrete obedience to his will. One may with his lips loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord, yet deny him by thoughts, words and acts. It's a dreadful warning that the church today urgently needs to take heed of. You know, I was once asked to stop preaching about repentance, but when you consider verses like these, how could you stop preaching about and talking about repentance? That turning our lives around. I worry that our churches are filled with people who think that they are saved just because they prayed some prayer years ago or because they attend church services regularly or because they don't commit any really bad sins. The kind of sins that they see other really wicked people committing. And yet at the same time and these people, There's been no fruit of righteousness in their lives. Their character is no more like Christ today than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. In other words, they might well have a relationship with the church, but they don't have one with Christ. In many ways, they're like the people the Apostle Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 3 and 5 that hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. And despite what folk might think, the power of the gospel is not the power to prophesy or perform miracles. It is the power to live a life transformed by the presence of Jesus. As Anabaptist theologian Stanley Hervas puts it, Jesus claims that by our fruits we will be known. Making impossible any attempt to separate the content of Christian belief from how we must live. Therefore, it's not enough to call him Lord. It's not enough to prophesy in his name. It's not enough to do deeds of power in his name, but rather only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of the Son. Jesus' warning here urgently requires us to examine ourselves, to ask of ourselves where in truth our allegiance lies. As theologian Karl Barth said, if Jesus is king, then all others are not. And As Jesus himself has pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. So let us examine ourselves. Let us not be self-deluded, thinking that we're on the narrow way when all along we're on the broad way. Make your calling and election sure, as the Apostle says.